Hi there. Welcome to season one of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. My name is Bert Scholl. I'm a two-time cancer survivor, a cancer survivorship coach, and the creator and host of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. To learn more about my coaching services, go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. We are currently searching for funding from a foundation or through advertising. In the meantime, this podcast is funded through a combination of community support and my own personal contributions. If you would like to contribute to the podcast so we can continue to bring more episodes to you and to people around the world, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash but seriously the cancer podcast. And thank you so much for all you do. Today's guest is Maria Honecker. Maria is a food creator, a wellness mentor, a mother, and a wife. She has been cancer-free for over two years. Hi, Maria. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, how are you doing? Pretty good, thank you. Glad it's the weekend. (laughs) Yes, I'm sure. For me, it's still eternally Saturday. Oh, lovely. I am, not, I am not back to work yet, but... <laughs> no, no. Try and make a difference. <clears throat> yeah, and, and I'm taking advantage of it and uh, recording these podcasts and doing my editing. And it's really? really exciting. Yeah. So begin by telling everyone, what were you diagnosed with and how old were you? So in 2017, I was um, 40 years old, just turned 40 that year in February. And um, I was then diagnosed with what was stage three uh, bowel cancer. So stage three bowel cancer. um, And I was, yeah, only 40 years old. Yeah, when I noticed people in a... UK when they ha- they say bowel cancer and I'm assuming over here we call we call it colon cancer. Yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah, that, that's the thing, and I I often call it colon cancer as well because I think um, here they use it as a common term. So you could have uh, it could be the colon, but or it could be like some people obviously have it um, in their rectum. So I think here that's like a an overarching name, but whereas mine was colon cancer, so if you wanted to split it into two, then that's probably how you would do it. But if you have an overarching name, it would here in the UK, they call it bowel cancer. Yeah, and so how did you find out? So um, I I actually went skiing in the April, and I don't really recall having any problems then. And then kind of sort of May uh, time, I... I had some blood in my stool and I guess I might have had it before on occasion and it was it was like kind of stringy type of blood Mm -hmm. almost looked like little worms and um, uh, I went to the GP and they just said oh it's probably hemorrhoids from childbirth like piles and I you know said "Oh, oh I don't know like now all of a sudden you know my son came you know in 2014 mm. and uh, yeah and that's what it's oh I can see that you have some so so I think that's what it is it did a, like a, a little check uh, but other than that they just said that that was what it was so I went home and she gave me like some ointments or whatever creams uh, went home and then I don't think it was that long a few weeks later I just saw I go and see a different um, doctor a different GP so I went back to the same, my surgery, but I went to see a different uh, doctor and she said the same thing. 
Um, I think mm. she also did some bloods as well. She said, oh, we'll do some bloods anyway, just to check your general health and everything. And she also said that it might be IBS because I had started to have a little bit of pain in my left side. And it would be mainly after I'd eaten. And then if I went to the toilet, it would go away again. Mm. So it wasn't like, it felt a bit like a period pain, but in my side. And it didn't last for very long, but I thought it was a bit strange. So I went back, yeah, and she said the same thing. And the bloods came back normal. They were all fine. There was no problems, no, you know, no anemia, nothing. So she also gave me some medicines to try for IBS, which I think I tried one. And then I was like, well, I don't have IBS. I've never had IBS. And I just didn't didn't take them. And, yeah, nothing much happened then. So that was in, like, June time. So come July, I... I decided, I showed my husband and he even said, you know, I think probably need to to go again or, or check it out. It just doesn't seem right, you know, mm-hmm. having to show your stool to other half. But um, so I then went to a private clinic to a doctor I paid to go privately. And she literally said the same thing because they do like a vis. A, a check but visual and then you know I told her what happened but she said it's just it doesn't sound normal the way you describe the blood it doesn't sound like hemorrhoids and she thought they should have a colonoscopy and obviously because it was private she said she could order one there and then mm. so I said yeah yeah that's good I said I just want to go home and check with my husband and everything and, and see what we're going to do and then I thought I'd ring my doctor and tell them what the private doctor had said. And I spoke to a third doctor within my GP surgery and all of a sudden, it was only over the phone. And he then obviously, he was a more senior doctor. So I don't know if it was because I seek the different opinion, a second opinion, or if it was because he was, you know, a bit more experienced. But he said, you know, oh, it doesn't sound right if you know, we should put it through for, you know, a colonoscopy. And then it only took two weeks and I could go for a colonoscopy all of a sudden. So I didn't go private in the end. I I just went back with my doctor and I was sent for a colonoscopy. And it's like when they see you, because you're 40 and you're slim and you're young and you eat healthy and you exercise. And then the guy in the hospital, my consultant said, oh, well, you're fit and healthy. There's nothing wrong with your bloods. You look fine. And he had a little look. He said, I can see that you have hemorrhoids and we can remove them easily. But uh, because you want a colonoscopy, uh, I don't think it will come to anything, but we let you have it anyway, luckily, he said. Mm. <laughs> but but he was like, I- I'm pretty certain there's, there's not going to be anything wrong with you kind of thing. And then it was probably like another week or so and I went in for my colonoscopy. And obviously when I went in, I was awake, but you could see like where the blood was coming from. Like you could see the bleed. So the person who did the procedure obviously just said, oh, that's where the blood was coming from. But then they didn't say anything else. So you were awake? Yeah, I was awake. Yeah, But I didn't know what I was looking for. Obviously, I, I was expecting that there was blood, but I was awake. But you obviously have pain relief. Were you sedated whatever. at all? Yeah, I think you are a little bit, but I wasn't asleep. Because over uh, here... I think that's a choice. It's a choice, probably. But I remember that I, w- I could still see the screen. I just want to chime in for a moment because I find that interesting because here it's routine to put people under. All right. Okay. 
after my cancer experience, I now have a colostomy. And, mm. But I was so tired of being sedated that I requested, you know, post-treatment, my post-treatment colonoscopies, I requested that I not be put under. And yeah. they had to check with the doctor to make sure that that was okay. Did you request to not be sedated or is that how they went into the procedure? I think they are. I, I mean, it's funny when you ask now and everything seems like a blur, doesn't it? Mm, and you're yeah. thinking, did I? Did I not? But I'm pretty sure that it's, uh, they ask you if you want to, if you don't want to, uh, because I was awake. But then doing my second one, which you do, you know, a couple of years later or every year you have one. And the last one I had, I, I don't remember um, <laughs> being awake. <laughs> so it's a bit weird, but I was definitely awake for the first one. And I'm pretty certain that you do have an option here to say. Yeah. I was just curious if it was a given that you'd be awake or if it was uh, optional. But No, I, I, th- I think it's optional. It's definitely optional. Okay, so they found, they found the uh, area. They found the bleeding. Yeah, yeah, they found the bleeding. And obviously, the, they're, they're just there to do, the, to do the colonoscopy. So they don't really say anything else. And then I remember just, you know, getting dressed and, and leaving and thinking, oh, that was, you know, the bleeding. And then you get kind of called in to like a little room, a, a consultation kind of room. And, and I was waiting there with my husband and I, I didn't really expect anything, but I guess you, you get to talk about what they found. But it was just a, like a specialist nurse that comes in and she's, she was a specialist nurse for bowel cancer. And she came in and, and just said that... Um, it was like she thought that we knew or something. And she said, yeah, that it was like a 99% chance that it was cancer. And, you know, if I was aware or whatever. And I said, oh, no, you know, we didn't know what to say. You know, we just kind of broke down. We, it was just kind of surreal. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and uh, we didn't expect it at all. So what do, you, what do you say to that? I mean, it leaves you completely silent. I don't know. It's nothing to say, is there? No, the mind moves so fast that the mouth can barely articulate what you're thinking because no thought is staying because it's the worst news you could ever get. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I was just in complete shock. Like, I would never... It hadn't even crossed my mind that that's what I, it could be. Like, it, oh. it was not even on my... That was even not one of my worries at all. Oh, my goodness. See, I had a similar experience where my doctor gave me a digital exam uh, three or four times over a six-month period. I saw him over a six-month period four times, and each time he told me that I had hemorrhoids. And he told me to increase my fiber. And after six months, I called the office and asked to see a specialist. And the specialist gave me a digital, and the first words he said were, do you have cancer in your family? Then he gave me a scope, you know, did a sigmoidoscopy, and it was too bloody. He couldn't see anything. Mm -hmm. So... He recommended I go to get a colonoscopy. So when I went in for mine, I thought to myself, okay, this is probably cancer. I think there's a very good chance it is, especially after six months of my doctor telling me I had hemorrhoids, you know, and and the blood just getting worse and worse. And I'm thinking, you know, he's missing. And I was 36. I was four years younger than you were. So... Mm. Again, young. they look Very at young. yeah, and they look at you and they think, well, it's not cancer. They don't even think cancer. They just think it's something. You know, it's, it's hemorrhoids. It's not. They don't. Their brain, for some of them, unfortunately, their brain doesn't say cancer. So there you are, 
completely stunned, and this nurse is speaking to you like she expects that you know that you yeah. know this. Yeah, yeah, it was literally that. Do you know what's happening? Kind of. Do you know what what you know what this is? I was like, no, I've got a clue. Um, so yeah, complete. Like I said, it, I just yeah, I don't think anybody expected it. Like you say, straight away for me, they. Even when I had, yeah, like you say, they can look, can't they, and do like a smaller exam and stuff. And they, they can like have, I don't know if that's what you call the scope or whatever. They didn't see anything then either. So it was only really because mine was obviously higher up and it, it was in the transcending colon okay. on the left hand side. So it was, you know, nothing could be seen that far down, I suppose. So. so they found it in the transcending colon. They, they tell you you have cancer. So what was the next step? I get confused now. So I'm saying it right to you. So it's, it could have been the descending colon, actually. Sorry, it was probably my fault. Never mind. But it was too far up to see. Yeah, and, with the sigmoidoscopy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it was actually, they did, it's actually probably, sorry, I should have said the descending colon because it was, when they took out the tumour, they did take away like a big margin. And of course, part of that then, they probably did take away a tiny bit of the rectum as well. Like, you know, the very top bit or whatever. I guess that's how they do it. But um, yeah, nothing that I would notice today. But that's obviously, I'm sure that's what they said. So yeah, sorry, my fault. Descending call. <laughs> now, the information comes so fast and it's so overwhelming and such a struggle to get through it all. That yeah. uh, the mind hangs on to what it hangs on to, right? And then there's parts that were like, I'm not sure. I think this is what they told me. I was a bit overwhelmed at the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess you go over it so many times, you know, stage three, 3C, and then you get into the nitty gritty, you know, the letters and the numbers. And, and when people ask you sometime, you know, specifics, I was like, Actually, I don't know. I, I'm not sure, hmm. you know. Definitely 3C. I know that much. So what were the next steps? They told you you had this diagnosis. Yeah. So, well, obviously, uh, they were the first thing that they worry about, I guess, is, you know, to see if it's, like, localised or if they can see it anywhere else. So that's what my first thing was. They wanted to rush me in and see that it wasn't in any other places, you know, when they, when what they'd taken out, when they, they kind of had confirmed that, that yeah. it was cancer. So yeah. I was told I needed a CT scan and, and that was literally within a week. And uh, I was in the middle of a house move as well. We bought a house. Uh, mm. We'd been away in Sweden for a couple of years, then we'd come back to the UK and then had been renting for a couple, couple of years and, and then we were going to the buyer house again and we were in the middle of a move and and she I remember the nurse calling me after my scan you know she said she wasn't sure how, how many days I would have to wait but she kind of rushed it all through and she rang and she said oh I you know it, it's good news it, it hasn't spread anywhere else and you could just get on with your house move now and focus on that and then you know, we'll book in for surgery and take that later. But I remember at the time, I was actually thinking, like, not that that it was, like, really great news. I just couldn't believe it, you know. It's such a relief. And also, it did feel like in the middle of all the bad things, you're just like, yeah, I take that. That's great news. And then I was actually just able to 
to focus on moving boxes and, and moving house, which was totally bizarre, but yeah. Yeah, isn't that an odd thing that they can tell you it didn't spread and then that's the good news that you're getting inside of this very bad news? Yeah, and that you can actually see the good in it as well. I yeah. mean, that's, that's pretty amazing. I, I mean, I never thought that that would be, be possible. And then so you received the CT scan. They told you that there was no uh, growth beyond the local area. Mm. And did you receive any... Uh, so what was the treatment you received? What was the... Yeah, so, so after that, so this was all happening. So <laughs> on the 4th of August in 2017 was supposed to be my... Um, well, it was my 10-year wedding anniversary, but two days before that, so on the 2nd of August, I um, I had, uh, you know, the confirmation about, you know, the cancer and, you know, everything else and, the, and uh, that that was what I had and it hadn't spread and everything. And then from there on, they booked my surgery. I was going to have surgery to remove the tumour and that happened a month later. So they booked it in for the 6th of September. So that is when I was booked in and she said you know the nurse and and everybody that I spoke to the specialist the oncologist they said that they didn't know at that point obviously what stage my cancer was and depending on how that all turned out once they'd opened me up and taken the tumor out and looked at it and looked at the tissue and everything else then we'd know further what stage it was. And she said that if it was like a stage one or two, then it's not always necessary to to have chemo and you can walk away, you know, without it and, and recover pretty well a lot of times. But if it's sort of beyond that, that chemo is, is usually always recommended or it is recommended. But So fingers crossed, I was hoping, you know, for the best. Yeah. But uh, um, I went in for my surgery and... I remember coming out and actually my, my surgeon, you know, telling me that it was um, it was a lot, you know, it was quite a long surgery. It was six hours mm. uh, and uh, the tumour was the size of a golf ball. Oh, wow. It's uh, a good sized tumour. Yeah. So that was what they said. So that was that was that. And then obviously it all being looked at and tested and and it hadn't spread like I said to other organs but when it was all tested and everything that it had gone into some of my lymph nodes Mm. and if I remember correctly I think they took out 27 and I'm pretty sure it had gone into nine of those so they said that with with those figures that yeah they recommended that I would have chemotherapy which in this house we talked about quite a lot and it it wasn't really anything that I wanted. It wasn't Mm -mm. something that I had planned on having. And I was, you know, had it been stage one or two, I think my husband and I were pretty certain that I was definitely not going to have that. But of course then stage three came and and with two little ones at home as well you it's not just about you anymore it's you know stats of how long are you going to live and reading up and what you you know what's going to get me the best results and you know that my oncologist obviously he wasn't that interested in giving me any statistics and I I said I wanted to know anyway just roughly obviously nobody know when your time is up there's there's no way of knowing that but he said that it, it was about 25% chance for me to survive five years. 
and oh my goodness yeah and with chemotherapy it was going to be 75 so a 49 it's going to be 49 percent uh, boost uh, in survival rate so when i heard that i just i don't know i just thought i, I owed it to my boys to to give it a chance but i knew that i wanted to take an interactive approach and i i wanted to use a lot of supplements and complementary you know treatments and things to make sure that i balanced out all the poison yeah and what you're speaking to is so much a part of the decision when the first time i had a stage two rectal cancer diagnosis and mm. after they did the surgery and the pathology my doc said i wouldn't need any chemotherapy and i was overjoyed and then my wife looked at him and said, well, Bert had stage two, but it was T4. So it was just a, like kissing the lymph node. It, they didn't see mm. any in the lymph node, but it was so close. He said, oh, okay, right. Okay, well, in that case, yeah, he's going to need six months of uh, you know, rigorous chemotherapy. Oh. And my head just dropped. And, mm. you know, we, my wife, we got in the car and she said, I'm sorry, but I think it's important. I said, no, it's completely important, 100%. I'm I'm just upset because like I can't believe I'm about to do six months of chemotherapy mm. and I'm sitting there with my head down trying to imagine how I'm going to do this and my five-month-old son was in the back mm. of the car and he said something and I heard his voice and it just filled me with warmth and joy and I thought to myself I will go through whatever it takes yeah and yeah. it just turned it all around you know and with as you think to yourself, like, how am I going to do this? And then you think of your children and you say, yeah, this is how. Hmm. Yeah, it's funny how it, you know, it's not, you know, that that is what they say, isn't it? About, you know, getting somewhere in, in this jungle. It's, it's having a why, isn't it? Why you're doing it all. And, yeah. And focus on that, I guess. And it was not that hard, you know, when you're a young mum to with a young family to to know what that is. Mhm. Mm so how much chemotherapy treatment were you uh given? It sounds similar to you. So I was supposed to have just under 6 months, I think it was, but it was eight cycles, but uh when I come to about cycle 6 or 7, I I uh, my neuropathy was getting quite bad in my hands. Mhm. Mm and I didn't like it and I brought it up with my oncologist and he agreed for me to lower my dose. So I, I said I wanted a little bit less because, you know, I didn't want it to become a permanent problem. So that was around cycle six. We, we took it down a notch. Okay. So that helped. And then by cycle seven, I had noticed as well that my, my liver readings were really bad, specifically two readings that they're concerned with and they they were kind of playing up and they can mean a few things you know anything from sort of bone damage to heart damage from the chemo it could just mean that it's fighting you know the toxins mm. but of course with colon cancer it, it, it when cancer like that spreads it goes to the liver or the lungs so they they're concerned well when I said you know I don't like the way that my readings are going my liver it just doesn't seem they're so high and they're not really recovering at all in between so they I then basically agreed with my oncologist to cut my chemo short so I finished after seven mm. sessions and he said that 
it's not really going to make any difference to your outcome whether you have seven sessions or eight sessions you know oh. if you're going to make it you're going to make it or if you you know so I was quite happy with that and it was obviously what I wanted to do so I went ahead so seven is is how many I had and even after that actually it took ages the the liver was still looking pretty pretty bad and and they got obviously a bit concerned at one point so they gave me an early scan um, wanted to check whether it was something there but it was completely clear and then and then they just forgot all about it as well my my liver nobody asked about it again until I brought it up and out of interest I wanted if they could you know check and and also when I was doing my blood test could they specifically check the liver again you know that and and it's funny but it today it's completely recovered again now you know but it was at that point where you're thinking is it ever gonna go back to normal but the body is an amazing tool yeah so it is and so when you asked them to take another look at the liver what did they find Mm. Uh, well, it, it, when I asked for my scan, obviously that was completely clear. Uh, and when, yeah, so when I then asked them to do some more bloods, that's when I found that it had gone back to normal. But I just found that from being, you know, the readings being quite bad and high, then and then just not addressing it again, which I thought was a bit strange. But. Yeah, and that's why uh, self-advocacy is so important. You've provided just two examples already when mm. you asked f- to see another doctor who mm. said, no, it's just hemorrhoids. Mm. And then as you pursued it further, you got the CT scan. And then with the mm. liver, you're, you're not feeling right. And you ask them, can you take another look? It's, it's so important that patients know that you are in charge because yeah. we often, so many people interact with doctors like they're the one in charge. I'm going to do what they say. But the reality is we are in charge. And when I was diagnosed, a friend of mine who had had cancer, she called me and said, Bert, you are in charge. You get to say how it goes. The mm. doctors work for you. My insurance pays the doctors, but I give the insurance company the go ahead to work with the doctors. And uh, you're a beautiful example of the difference it makes when you speak up. And because I may not have, if my friend didn't encourage me, I was terrified. (laughs) I mean, as we all are, but it it quieted me and her encouragement is what had me speak. I think that when I look back as well today, uh, where I am at the moment and just looking at how it all went, I, I always see the hardest part of it all was kind of, well, first, when you obviously have the initial breakdown and you're upset and, and everything else. And then I, and then actually when you decide to take control and take a proactive approach and just get on with it, that bit seemed quite manageable now when I look back at it. Mm-hmm. But then post-treatment again is when the hard bit comes, not to worry, not to think what will happen now, what, you know, is there anything going on? Then you get back. That is actually nobody tells you, you get discharged, you don't speak to anybody or, you know, that's much worse almost because you're on your own and nobody understands what you're talking about it unless they've been there themselves and they just think oh you're fine now move on you hear that all the time oh there's nothing wrong move on and it's like yeah but it doesn't work like that though I mean you have days but of course you have good days and bad days but it's always gonna you know come back and haunt you once in a while you know yeah it does get more difficult. Say more about that. Say more about what that, if you would, what that was like for you after treatment was over. 
Yeah, so treatment was over, uh, cutting one session short. So I finished my last treatment at end of March 2018. And that's when it it finished. And then, like I said, because I've had a bit of issues with the liver that I considered the number had kind of escalated, they did an early scan in May uh, that year so I was supposed to wait till September on my year mark to have my scan but they called for an early one so I then had one in the May and that was all clear and then I still went ahead and had my colonoscopy and my annual check again and I'd have another scan quite early on like you know on the year mark which seemed a bit soon for another scan but that's what they wanted in the end so yeah. and it was still clear so so that was a huge relief and the colonoscopy went well um but um yeah like you say then it's kind of starting to piece your life back together and it's just really kind of odd you know and and I knew from early on that I wanted to kind of try and help others who you know are faced with the same situation and I I find that that's helped me work through it all if that makes sense I think talking to friends and family about it it's okay but I still feel that they don't truly understand what you've been through as much as they like to and they say that they do but they don't really so well yeah because they can't no and it's it's not something that a person can understand after you go through all that treatment Mm. and all that care and all that attention no I'm not sure what it was for you but for me to have an entire team surrounding me week to week to have a group of nurses who are always at my side and supporting me through everything. It was a struggle for me to allow myself to be supported by them and Mm. to accept the support. And so when it came time for it to end, my treatment was over. I don't know about over there, but over here, we ring a bell when your chemotherapy is done. Same. I never did it actually, but but (laughs) you do. You do. Somehow I didn't do it. But yeah. Oh, and uh, and then you go home and it's crickets and there's no one around and it's quiet and there's a struggle with recovering from the treatment and recovering from the surgery still and having your body not be what it once was. Yeah. And for me, that was very difficult. And as much as a person can have compassion for you, you know, they, they can't truly empathize because they don't know. And Sounds like you found the connection you needed by being a support for others, yeah? Yes, yeah. Yeah, definitely fine. But also uh, a bit like you say, like like an advocate. And I've chosen to take like a more positive approach. I mean, there's loads of people out there sharing, you know, the kind of cruelty of it all and, you know, all the, you know, the reality and that, which I appreciate. And I think that's really important. But I think when you're in the middle of it as well, though, I think you could really appreciate some hope and, you know, the good bits. And that's sort of what I choose to focus on, because I think even for my own sanity as well, you you can sit around and kind of flick through all the, you know, there's so many horrendous stories and people dying every day. But I guess you have to try and not let it get to you too much. You see, it just stop you from living altogether, I think. Yeah, I agree. When I was diagnosed, it was only about a month in when I realized that, okay, I may die. And if I'm going to die, I'm going to live as fully as I possibly can. And I'm going to live positively. And like, as you're saying, you know, if 
there's plenty of negativity inside of cancer. I mean, there's so much. And I chose to give my attention to what was going to lift me up. And when I did get negative and sad and upset and feel hopeless, one of the things I was trained to do was to express it, to not bury it, to not push it down and say, no, I'm going to be positive, but to really let it be expressed, let it come out fully and allow the emotion to be and not resist it and notice, you know, what are my, what are my real concerns? What are my fears? What's beneath this upset? You know, what am I really afraid of? What am I uh, feeling disconnected from? And then once I got in tune with that, it was much easier to be positive and focus on the positive and the contribution I could be. But it's kind of like walking a tightrope. You know, you want to acknowledge the struggle and give yourself space to move through it. But at the same time, you don't want to get stuck inside of it. And you want to be positive, but you also don't want to pretend. <laughs> no, it is really hard. And that's what I mean. No matter how you try to explain it to somebody, yeah. it's... It's all that talking about mental health, you know, at the moment. It's been a topic and, you know, for for a while. And uh, it's the same thing. It's like you can't put a finger on it like because everybody is different. And you're not just going to be happy all the time. And even people say to me, oh, you're always so positive. You know, you're always so this and that. But it must be so hard to still have that burden. It's like it is, but... But then, yeah, like you say, it must. it's important to allow yourself to be whatever it is you need to be. And then just after you've done that, just go back to, you know, living your life, I guess. And, yeah, yeah and so, exactly. Agreed. So I'm curious, mm-hmm. when you decided that you were going to be a contribution to the cancer community, how did you begin and what inspired you? What were you drawn to? So... One of the things that I did when I was diagnosed with my cancer is I I went along uh, here in Bristol, near where I live, went along to a a centre called Penny Bron Cancer Centre. And basically it's a a centre for people living with cancer and beyond and for their relatives. And it's they offer a, a holistic way of looking at it and they're offer a lot of complementary therapies. You know, you can have appointments with doctors, you can have, you know, yoga, cooking classes, treatment support groups, things like that. And it was all free of charge because it's, it's a charity. And I, I decided from the start that I, you know, I went along and the, it's just a tranquil place, like mm. really uplifting, not scary, like not like sort of, hasn't got any death vibes. It's really like full with life in a weird way. And I just went along and, and I, I did do go to some um, treatment support groups there. And I found that really helpful then because you could then meet in a group with other people, not necessarily with the same cam- you know, cancer, but people from all walks of life. And you could talk about your you know, struggles with your treatment or your diagnosis or your life surrounding, you know, cancer. And then you'd have professionals there as well. And then they they did offer things like uh, residentials. You can come and stay for a whole weekend and have, oh. like, yoga, cooking. And it's all, like, you know, healthy food. So, 
yeah, it was just, uh, I, it was an eye-opener for me, even though I've always lived a, a healthy lifestyle. Uh, my husband's a chiropractor, so, you know, we, we do run, a, we have our own clinic and we obviously mm. look after other people's health and always exercised and ate pretty well, you know, so I, it was always there, but just seeing what they did there, I was quite keen to, you know, to help others once I was kind of through my biggest hurdle. Yeah. And that's where, where it came from a lot. And of course, now everybody is online these days. You, you are able to share kind of some of the things that you found helpful and people can ask you questions and, and save them having to do all the research that I did myself. Mm, yeah. So you got, can, it, it is wonderful. Like, right, that's how I found you was on Instagram. And yeah. uh, I heard about a podcast called You, Me, and the Big C. Oh yeah, yeah. Heard about Bowel Babes. I started following yeah. Bowel Babe on Instagram, yeah. and then you were yeah. you were following her, and I somehow found you, and I found you really inspiring. So I started following you, and now here we are. Yeah, yeah, fabulous. Yeah, Deborah, she's she's definitely she's just a machine. She keeps on going. Yeah, and one of the things I love about her is she's so so self-expressed and full of mm. of. Of of joy, but really not so much the joy that I love. It's that I love how she's she's self she's self expressed to an extreme. She's mm. just willing to throw herself out there, and that includes when things are not going well. Yeah, yeah. And, and she lets people. Great. It's so important to let people know that part of being inspired and feeling inspired and fulfilled also includes having really tough days and getting bad yes. news from the doctor. And it's. How I view her feet is there's no pretense there. These no, days, you know. no, it's, it is brilliant. Then you need people like that. And I do really appreciate that. But even now when people ask me, you know, when you're doing an interview or something, well, have you got, you know, lots of, have you got pictures of you in surgery? You know, everybody takes pictures of themselves straight out of surgery. <laughs> I never did that. I, I probably just thought I'm not going to be here long. I'm not keeping this. I have like one or two from chemo. That's it. I... I, it wasn't on my agenda to kind of, no. you know, here I am. I just didn't didn't do that, and uh, I guess that was just me. I had, I don't know. I just had, I had no plans to share that bit. Not because it didn't happen, and I've sort of, I've shared like you know the chemo or, or whatnot, but I just never did that, and it seems to definitely be the norm. You know, every I don't know anyone else who haven't got a picture of them in the hospital bed. I'm <laughs> like the only one. <laughs> I have one or two. I had a blog. So I was diagnosed for the first time in 2007 in March. And then I was diagnosed the second time in 2011 in September. So in 2007, I kept a blog, you know, and when I was diagnosed again in 2011, the blog picked up again, and I shared things on Facebook. I had one or two photos here and there, but there was no Instagram. Or may I say, I wasn't aware of Instagram in 2011. I didn't find out about it until 2012. Apparently, it had already been around. You know, and Instagram is is photo oriented social media. You know, like on Twitter and Facebook, you can just write you can just put in text and that works instagram really you know is all about the photo and so i wonder if that's what has people <laughs> putting photos of themselves in the hospital but it's, it's such a hoot yeah but. 
such a common photo to know. And it's great because you get to see what it really looks like. But that's why I think because I always come back to my food because I love cooking, but I also like taking pictures of food. So I find that, you know, I'll do the odd one about myself, but I just, I don't always, it's not always about me, I guess, in the no. end. So you got, you were inspired by the Penny Braun Cancer Center. Yes. And what did you then do? Where did you begin? Well, I think I feel like I'm still beginning now, you know, yeah. it's like, where is this all going to take me? And I, I, I have some ideas and, and things that I'm working on, but I'm still trying to streamline. But I just thought, you know, I didn't actually start a blog. I mean, it, when I was going through treatment, I did kind of set a page up, but I never did anything with it. And now I can't even remember how to create a blog. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, I guess I just thought it's easy to share here on Instagram. So I just, it's quick, you know, it doesn't take... Well, it takes time, but it doesn't take, you know, too much of my time. I mean, so I did that. And then I did also, I have dedicated some of my time to help at Penny Braun, not so much as volunteering there, but I do, I've been invited to be a speaker there on several occasions uh, for their fundraisers and sharing my story. And also uh, been talking to medical students a few times and also to medical professional about how I found, you know, getting diagnosed with cancer and going through my treatment. And I've shared that with young students who are in their second year but at Bristol University, but I've also shared it with, you know, health professionals, which I think is really important. Very important. It's very important for them to hear the stories, to hear the experience, to hear about the symptoms and how it was all pieced together. Because... Mm. You know, with my doc who told me that I had hemorrhoids four different times, like something had him not look further. When, you know, I was passing gas and every time I passed gas, there was blood coming out. And I was like, doc, I'm like, I'm like old faithful. Like every time I pass gas, there's blood spraying. This isn't right. And he just said, well, you know, keep eating fiber. And my hope is that with things like my podcast and things like your speaking, publicly that more and more people in the medical field start to think outside of the box think outside of the textbook yeah because it's one thing as well that you see quite a lot and it, i guess it's one of the things that i don't necessarily agree with and that is that that i don't i don't necessarily think that there is you know one treatment fits all and you need to do your own research and take the bits that fits you and that, that you feel comfortable with and, and the same for conventional treatment. But I do see that, you know, there is definitely a need for a combination of conventional treatment with complementary, you know, therapies and, and other things. And I think for many people that method works really well, you know. Uh, and then, you know, there are a lot of, radical remissions and lots of people who didn't choose to have treatment as well but nobody knows who it's going to work for and who isn't you know it, it has to be your own choice like you have to be happy with it and when you say yes and whatever you go for like you say don't ever feel like they should just tell you what you should do because yeah. It happens way too often and I guess that is why nothing is ever diagnosed as well because people are 
just put in their trust in their doctor and also they don't know everything and they can miss things but you know your body and you're the only one who knows your body that, so i think pushing you've got to push for it and if you know there is wrong you sh- you have to keep on going i guess because otherwise it's going to be too late that is so important you know you know your own body like it was after six months of my doc telling me i had hemorrhoids a conversation with my wife was what had me go further but it was really her encouraging me and saying like, look, you really should go to the doctor because, mm. oh, actually, let me, I want to correct that. When I first started, yeah. when I first started passing blood, I was telling my wife after it was consistent for a while and she recommended I go to the doctor. And I said, yeah, well, you know, it's probably just hemorrhoids. I've seen this before. It's not a big deal. And then it kept happening and she asked how it was going and I told her it was still happening. She's like, well, why don't you go to the doctor, you know? And, you know, there's this resistance to wanting to go. And then when I did go, my doc tells me it's just hemorrhoids. And so I believe him. And then after six months, I finally mm. spoke up. And through this process, I have learned to tune into my body and notice mm. how much the body really does communicate what's going on that I previously just ignored. Mm. My body was a beast of burden. I said, do this, do this now. No one could outwork me. I could, I could work alongside anyone. Maybe I wasn't as strong as that person, but I could work hard for hours and hours and hours. And I pushed my body. I didn't listen to what my body wanted. No. And then years later, this happens to me. And I still remember friend's daughter, Kati. She posted a meme that said something about you know, being friends with your body. And I looked at that and thought, What? Like that's the strangest thing I ever heard. And in the next moment, I just thought, oh my gosh. Like, I really have no idea what that means. No. And I got reacquainted with my, and I'm still getting reacquainted with my body. Like you said, you know, I asked, mm. you, I asked you what your advocacy is like. And you said, well, you're still in the beginning now. And yeah. I, I was yeah. diagnosed in 2007. And it's now 2020. This podcast, the very first one was recorded in January of 2020. And I'm mm. only now just, I still feel like I'm just beginning. I was, when I was diagnosed in 2007, it was only a few months after that. I knew that part of my purpose in going through this diagnosis is to be a contribution yeah. to humanity. Yeah, that's how I feel as well. And I yeah, did, definitely. I, yeah, you get it. And, and I didn't know how. And I used to get upset and worry and be like, oh no, what am I going to do? How am I going to be a contribution? Was this all in vain? Hmm. And now after, I guess, years of training with uh, teachers and uh, different programs and seminars, you know, I've really gotten clear. All there is to really do is to just take the next step. And I think it's just part of healing as well, isn't it? It's just, you know, giving to others, helping others and just all the gratitude, everything. It all just belongs together. It's all, it's all just comes together. And that's, that's kind of part of helping you to, to heal as well. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So what happened to you then in, in uh, you said you had a reoccurrence. Or, mm-hmm. Yeah, so how did that come about? Yes, yeah, so my treatment... For the first diagnosis, my treatment ended in the spring of 2009. And I started getting quarterly scans. Hmm. And in August of 2011, I had a scan 
and my doctor's office called and the nurse practitioner told me that they saw a spot on my liver and they're concerned. And I said, do you think it's cancer? And she said, yes, we do. And I remembered that the CT scan techs had spilled some water on the machine. They wiped it up the best they could, but they were concerned that it could have affected the imagery. So I immediately asked my doc, are you sure it's not because the tech spilled water? And so yeah. she, she hung up and she called me back and they checked. She said, no, that's not what we're looking at here. Hmm. So I went in and had my scan and found out that it had metastasized to my liver. Hmm. And when I met with the oncologist, he has a big smile on his face and he said, Nice to meet you. Nice to come on in. He said, I have good news. I said, oh, I don't have cancer. He said, no, you do, but you have the good kind of metastasis. At which point I'm looking at him like he has three heads. I'm like, what are you talking about? This is good news. He said, yeah, rectal cancer can metastasize through the lymph nodes or like in your case, it can metastasize through the portal veins and this web of veins that leaves the colon and goes to the liver. Hmm. And that's where the cancer cells traveled from. They traveled from my large intestine to my liver. And that is a safer kind of metastasis. Because as you know, you know, the lymph nodes are the super highway of the body. Hmm. And that's where cancer can really travel. Yeah. So I went and got a second opinion about two hours from here in a city called Rochester, Rochester, New York. And then a buddy of mine encouraged me to go down to Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center down in New York City. Yeah. And I received a third opinion there. And I went with Memorial Sloan Kettering and mm -hmm. had my surgery and about six and a half, seven months of chemo. And by June 2012, I was told I was cancer free and I've had no evidence of disease since. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, great. So it was about like somewhere around, what, two and a half years after your first cancer then that it came back, something like that then, I guess? So we go from about, about one and a half years, 2009 in the spring, and then we go 10. Oh, no, you're right. About two and a half years. About two, two and, and a half, half years, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was certain I would never have cancer again. So when they told me that, you know, my yeah. first thought was like, oh, okay, great, I'm going to die. I don't know, look at all my lymph nodes. I haven't, I don't even know. Wait, I, I think, I don't even know if I have a scan this year. Obviously, it's a different system where you are because it's all insurance and paid for. And in this country, it's kind of depends where you live sometimes, what the procedures are and when your scans are due and how many you get. And I don't know if I still have an annual. Maybe I have a scan, but not a colonoscopy this year or something. I can't remember. I used to do one colonoscopy every year and mm. a scan every quarter and then every four months, then every six, now every 12 mm. months. And mm. now my colonoscopies, I get them every three years. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I am curious about the system over there. So you said that you saw your doc and then you saw a different doc and then you decided, was it the second doc or the third doc that you hired privately? No. So in this country, so it's like a national health service. Uh, so we don't really pay or have, like, you don't need health insurance to be seen. It's like in Sweden as well. Like, it's paid for through your taxes. Mm -hmm. So you have, 
like in Sweden as well and here in the UK. So you have like a, a general practitioner that you see if you've got anything min- like minor wrong. So, so that's why I would have gone the first couple of times before I saw a private doctor. But obviously when I saw private, I, I paid. Yeah. But the other ones you don't pay. You have the option there to pay a private doctor if you're not satisfied with the public yeah. service. Yeah, yeah definitely. I choose to not incorporate political topics and provocative social change topics on this podcast. Mm. But I will say that, you know, we get a lot of mixed messages over here. You know, in the United States, there are people who are pushing for, you know, a government, you know, health insurance for everyone. And Mm. then there are many people who push to keep it private. And there's a lot of, you know, in social media, heaven help us, you know, or even the news itself, you know, you get, you know, extreme uh, claims about what's happening over in Europe. And so you're mm. in the UK and you were in Sweden as well. And mm. it's, it's valuable for me to hear that with a public health system, you still have the option to pay a private doctor. Yeah, 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 definitely. You can, you can do pay for surgery or you can pay to have like a consultation or you can pay to see a private GP as well. And yeah, or anything that if you want to pay you can do that and obviously usually if you do that it's it's quicker you know if if you sometimes if there could be a wait if you have an urgency for something and you want to be seen quicker and you have the money then you you could just do that Hmm. and can you buy private health insurance in england yeah i think you you can yeah yeah there are different packages and things i'm sure that you can i know definitely with dental it's quite popular to have private dental insurance and then you again you have like a different plan and stuff so yeah i think you can do do all of all of that although i think the people who have private health insurance quite often it's like you you have in america as well through 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 their jobs or through their husband or wife's jobs or something like that so it does happen but uh, the majority would still come, you know, be under the National Health Service. So that sounds to me like the system of lawyers and the court system that we have over here. Like, okay. if you cannot afford one, one will be appointed to you, and you can have a court-appointed lawyer. So if you don't, right. you don't have the yeah. money when you're in court, you can have a, they'll, they'll provide you a lawyer for, at no cost. It it won't may not be the best lawyer, All right, and you yeah. things may have to move a little more slowly. Yeah. And then if you choose to, you can pay a lawyer and yeah, things may happen. I suppose it's a little bit similar, I would say. Although I think here, once you, like if you go to like your GP and that, you know, quite often they're, I suppose that because they see such a vast majority of people and, and a lot of GPs probably, you know, you probably get time wasters and people that come in, you know, for lots of things. And then you... So you're probably a bit swamped and then obviously you have the the job of when serious issues comes in, yeah. you've got to be, you know, you're not a specialist, you're just a general practitioner. So you don't specialize in all areas, do you? That's the difference, I guess. So you see them first, but once you then are referred to a specialist, like I've been on several occasions uh, when I was pregnant as well with my first and I had something called placenta previa and you know had to go to hospital and I had to stay in hospital for a while because you know you can get a bleed and and uh, it could be life-threatening so and all of that once you kind of go 
to a hospital level, like I can't say I can never, I can't fault any of the care that I've received here ever. And I've not paid a penny for any of that other than, you know, through, through the tax money. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it it is probably the problem that you could have is probably on a on the other level where like I said so many people needs to be seen and then of course if everybody then needs to be pushed to a specialist I guess that's where the problem could be because it creates like long waiting lists and things and where I'm from in Sweden it is it's very similar okay so the downsides are that you may wait a little longer for yeah but then I suppose cases can still be missed, like you say, even sure. if you pay over there. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, there are pros and cons. And, and, but, yeah, we don't kind of pay to have a baby or <laughs> things like that. Not, up, you know, not on the spot. It's already kind All of... Right. And what did you... What was the uh, issue you had when you were pregnant? Oh, so, so my placenta was blocking, you know, my vagina, so it wouldn't be able to come out. So they had ah. to give me a cesarean. Yeah, but the problem with it is it's quite rare, but the problem with it is um, that the placenta can come away and start bleeding. And then okay. you could, you know, you could, it could be, you know, a risk to the baby and to you as well. So I had to go and wait in hospital for my due date to come even though I hadn't even had a bleed. And actually, in the end, I only had a small bleed a day before my my C-section. So it wasn't a problem, but I guess it's a precautionary measure. Mm. But you don't pay to stay in the hospital for that. For those four or five weeks, I I didn't pay to stay there. That's a long stay in the hospital. Yeah, yeah. Over Christmas, it was great. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so there must be, it must be a... uh very dangerous situation and they want to monitor it very closely yeah yeah the doctor let me go out at christmas he let me go home for a couple of hours he said oh you could even have a glass of wine i said no i'll be all right he's like yeah have a glass of wine but when i stayed to be fair in hospital i had my own room and my husband would come in because he was our first child he would lie in my bed and people would think that he was the patient you know he was watching tv and i was like it's my bed oh you're in the chair and he's in the bed yeah <laughs> He's watching like 24 or something with Keith Sutherland or something. Oh, that's oh. great. So, what's the name of your Instagram feed? Is it Stumble Upon My Healing Path? Oh, no. Yeah, so Step, Step Inside. No, it's, so don't step. Stumble. I'm sorry. Say well, it again. That's all right. It's okay. I don't even know where it came from. Step Inside My Healing Pantry. I. I don't know, yeah, because I guess a lot of the stuff that I did is like food, but obviously now I, I've done, you know, I, I talk more about not just food, but, you know, the lifestyle of it all as well and, and my experience with it all. But I am studying at the moment as well with a medical doctor here in Bath, and she's a holistic doctor. Mm-hmm. And uh, she has a company called Health Creation and I think you had a little look and uh, basically she's all about, you know, prevention and and looking at, you know, how to prevent uh, lifestyle related diseases. But the link and how I came across the lady who's called Rosie is that she she used to work for Penny Braun for years and years. She was like high up working in Penny Braun. So when I wanted to do a study course, I, I contacted the, like the marketing and communications team at Penny Brown and I said, do you know of any courses? Like I want to do some sort of coaching, but I don't just want to be like a coach to lose weight and feel great. Like I want to do, you know, coach people 
similar to myself. And then she, they recommended this course. So they said, oh, you might want to look up Rosie. So I did and, and uh, talked to her about it. And she obviously saw my link as well with being a, an, like a kind of like an ambassador for Penny Braun and stuff. So, yeah, so I decided to go on a course. And uh, I hope then with my course which is more like a mentoring course and and you can you know help people to improve their lifestyle or improve their health in all areas of life and you basically talk about 12 12 pillars of health so it's not just you know what you eat but equally your environment and you know your stress and your spiritual health and yeah it's very interesting so hopefully I'll be able to uh, incorporate that into everything as well. Gotcha yeah so you're supporting people in all the areas of life where they can maintain or pursue optimum health. Yes. Yeah, that's it. And 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 I suppose for some help to reverse disease as well, I guess. Yeah. And hopefully stay alive myself as well, you know, that's the plan. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's always the thing, you know, what's happening in the future. It feels so I guess that's part of why I found it daunting as well to start with it. I don't know how you felt, but to help others because if anything that happens to you, you you feel a bit like a fraud, then, don't you? Like yeah. are you talking about all these things, but there's always a chance that you know something could happen to you and then what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> but but I guess that's life. Yeah, you um the fear of being interpreted fear of letting people down the fear of being you know believed to be a fraud i find that runs that that's a pretty steady stream that runs through most people who put themselves out into the world is the fear of being perceived of you know or or called a fraud and i can imagine how getting diagnosed again or having a major health crisis could have one feel like a fraud when i first was diagnosed three doctors told me that i needed to have a colostomy either temporary or permanently, chemo, radiation, surgery. So I spoke with my wife about how I was going to approach this, and she spoke with me about alternative treatments. And I did a detox therapy for 10 months before pursuing traditional allopathic treatment. Uh, I still had blood work, and I still had quarterly scans to watch my body and make sure that nothing had changed. But I wanted to not have a colostomy. And so I, I, I took on this detox therapy so that if I, you know, the premise is if you detoxify your body, your body can actually do the work of healing you. And after 10 months, uh, there was no metastasis and, you know, no spreading of the cancer whatsoever. However, it grew the tiniest bit and caused me a great deal of pain. Mm. So eventually when I stopped doing it and I went ahead with traditional medicine, uh, you know, allopathic Western medicine. I had been keeping a blog, and you know, there, there were people on every continent except Antarctica who were reading my blog. People who were interested in the kind of treatment that I was doing. When I sat down to type, you know, that I am no longer doing this natural, holistic treatment, and I am now going to do traditional treatment with chemotherapy and radiation. I felt like such a fraud. I felt like a failure. I felt ashamed. I felt like I was letting so many people down. And in retrospect, it was a really valuable experience mm. because it, it got me to see that you can lead a conversation in the world and you can provide the example of yourself and it may not work. And what's most valuable in my eyes 
is providing those who are listening or watching or reading modeling of what it's like to go through a change like that. And, you know, I didn't try to hide that I was embarrassed and that I felt like I'd let people down. I, I made it clear that, you know, that's what I was going through and it was difficult for me. I think there's real value in seeing people struggle and watching them go through it. And if, you know, if they're kind enough to give you a, an insight yeah. or, or, or a peek into their world, you know, then you can say like, you know, there's a sense of relief. It's like, okay, like, yeah, life is real. Life sometimes hits you hard. And it's, a, I'm, I'm not the only one is what you can think when you see someone else going through a really difficult experience, you know, especially when, you know, because it didn't have to be cancer. I was changing my treatment from a non-traditional to a traditional treatment and it wasn't so much that that was the uh, primary focus it wasn't the cancer itself it was the it was the struggle that I went through in letting people know you know in going from someone who was informing people all around the world about what this process was like to shifting the process and and going through the the struggle of that and 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 letting people see that up close and personal, you know, I feel like that, you know, it, when it was happening, it was not pleasant. But in retrospect, I saw like, oh, you know, it really helps to see the real side of people, you know, because it's when everything's shiny and polished and looks like you've made all the choices easily and, you know, being inspiring, you know, to me, you know, that's, it's nice to see what people go through, but there's value to me in, in seeing the real person and the humanity of the individual. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, I don't. I find the hardest bit about the conventional treatment and what it does to your body. I, I find the hardest bit about that is like how you feel now as well. I think a lot of people just kind of go through the treatment and then the once they do make it and recover and are cancer free today, but so few talk about or seem to have an issue with anything afterward. It's like they're completely like fully restored. And my, like you say, the immune system or if you ever have, but like, or little niggles or, but it's like, I mean, I'm, I might be, you know, mostly recover. I mean, I can't say I have any major problem, but I can't say I feel like I did before either. I mean, just to say, oh, I'm just like I was. I just, yeah. the whole body just don't feel like it. Nothing feels like it did. It just doesn't. Yeah, me either. And I want to feel like I used to feel. Yeah. And I want to figure out what I need to do to feel like I used to feel. It was yeah. years before I finally felt normal. Yeah, that's it. And when people say, that's what I was like, and, and some people say, oh, yes. Or they say, oh, six months and you recover, you know, you should, your body will be back to normal. And I was thinking, how is that when you put all those toxins into your body? How are you supposed to just be completely normal after six months? I was like, I can't see how that's possible. I mean, I just can't. Maria, they treat us for the cancer and then they don't yeah. treat us for the treatments. No. I mean, the mm. treatment is almost as I don't want to say the treatment can be as deadly as the cancer. Yeah. The treatment. Well, some people die from it. You yes. can die from, you know, chemo. But like, say, you probably can't die from eating too many fruits and vegetables and doing <laughs> complementary treatment. But you can definitely die from chemotherapy. That's what Chris Walk was saying, wasn't it? It's like you could definitely die from. But who was saying? Chemo. Uh, Chris, you know, crispy cancer. Do you follow Chris Walk? No. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So that's one of the programs that I did. It's called a square one 
uh, program. So Chris, he lives uh, in Tennessee, I believe, Memphis. Well, he had uh, the same... Well, it's in Nashville, but he lives in Tennessee anyway. But he... He had the same um, same stage three colon cancer like me, but his was on the right hand side and mine was on the left. But he only had surgery and he chose to have no other conventional treatment. Mm. How do you spell his last name? Uh, Walk. So it's W A R K. Oh, Chris beat cancer. Look it up on Chris on any cancer. social media. Mm. All right, I will. Yeah, oh, um, he, he's got lots of valuable information, and I I certainly found his program life you know, life-changing for me. Uh, it was one of the first things that I did. And he he's just researched for years and years. He's just a really great guy. I guess he was diagnosed a lot younger. I think he was in his mid-20s and he didn't have children. And I always find that, you know, being diagnosed with cancer when you're a, a mum of young children, you know, you have to add that on top as well, motherhood. to your, Even that is so tiring. I mean, going through treatment when you only have to think about yourself, even that will make a difference. But actually, you know, then you throw two kids climbing on you in the mix as well. Mm-hmm. It's just, oh, my gosh. You my- know, so I find that my starting point, obviously, we had the same cancer, but I find that he, his, you know, his life was quite different from mine when he set out on his journey. Uh, so I'm glad I found him. And he'd obviously done a lot of the research. So Oh, that's wonderful to hear. Yeah. So so he does holistic and natural approaches to recovering from treatment. Yeah, he just talks about he just talks about everything that he's read. I mean, like I said, he said he he obviously didn't do conventional treatment, although surgery is conventional treatment, but mm. he didn't do anything else. Uh, but he did. Yeah, he's done a lot of research into you know anything from um, uh, supplements and you know complementary therapies to. He talks about, you know, conventional treatment as well. Like He doesn't say that there isn't a place for it, but he obviously realizes the danger of it all. And, and, yeah. 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 It's, uh, it's rough stuff. My oncologist told me the first time I was diagnosed that he was going to hit me hard with chemo. He was going to bring me to the brink of death, you know, and then, and then hold me back in order to kill the cancer. Like, that's, that, that is how powerful that treatment is that's how that's how dangerous it is and uh it it does so much to the body and i i've been over time researching different ways to detox the body from uh all the chemotoxins you know because they tell you that your body metabolizes it in you know x number of hours or days and what i find is you know that doesn't feel accurate in my body you know i'm still looking so anyone listening please uh you know let me know what you know of as far as detoxifying the body. I've heard that there are mushroom tinctures that people use to detoxify chemo from the body. Uh, still more for me to research and learn. But I mean, heck, when I was getting chemotherapy the first time, I used homeopathic remedy to bring down the nausea. Oh, yeah. It was, it, it was helpful. As the treatment went on, because I had six months of chemo, and as time went on, it became less and less effective. But in the beginning, it certainly made a difference. I had some advice. When I started out, I came across a, a lady that was recommended to me, and she, she's an ex-oncology nurse, and uh, she set up her own company, uh, specialising as well in helping people 
you know, helping with support. So what you can do to support your body when you're going through conventional treatment. So she actually designed a protocol for me on supplements and uh, therapies and things to do and what to take throughout chemotherapy. So um, I found that as well a really valuable tool. So, I mean, I don't know what I would have done. So I would take supplements, like you say, to support my liver or mm-hmm. I would do saunas to detox or I would take certain supplements or I would do fasting before chemo. You know, there's so much, like you say, that you can t- do to to help you know, to support the body through that really difficult time. And how did the fasting before chemo affect you? Uh, Well, as far as I was told, it is meant to help uh, for the chemo not only becoming more effective, um, and also uh, it can help you feel less rotten as well. And to be fair, chemo for me wasn't that bad. I mean, I didn't get sick. I didn't lose my hair. I The only thing I found bad about it was my neuropathy uh, in my hands. That was my main, main, main problem, really. So I didn't really feel sick. Just- I, felt, I got a bit constipated at times sometimes, which it can do, but yeah. Just the neuropathy, no loss of hair. No loss of hair. Mm. See, I lost my hair, but I didn't lose my eyebrows. Or well, I had a I had a beard, a goatee, back yeah. then, and and that didn't fall out. So, no, I think with the colon cancer treatment specifically, I don't know if it's different because you obviously said yours was was it rectal cancer? Did you say mine was yeah. rectal cancer? Yeah. Yeah, might be a different chemo. I'm not sure, mm-hmm. but I do know from the start that they did say that the hair doesn't normally fall out with the chemo that you will be receiving so I mean it does get dry and a bit you know it's not the best texture of hair but it didn't I didn't lose it I mean you might lose a few hairs but and then the other thing they did say about you know the whole not about the chemotherapy but they said about when I was having my surgery because I remember you saying about colostomy bag and Mm -hmm. stuff and they said that you may wake up with a bag. We just don't know. But what oh. I am, the surgery said, the surgeon said that what I'm going to try to do is take the tumor out and then put the two pieces back together. And that's what most likely will happen. But there's obviously a chance that we can't do that. And then you need to be prepared that you may, may or may not have to wake up. It would be a temp- temporary bag, which can be reversed with time. So I, I kind of went along and I had some meetings about that just in case, you yeah. know, what would it be like? But I woke up, I, I didn't have one. So. Well, that's nice. And it's wonderful to know that it would only have been temporary, which makes sense yeah. because it was in the colon and Higher not the up. rectum. Mm. Yeah. I very much did not want to have a colostomy. Yeah. And now it's just, I don't, it's whatever. It's just part of my mm. life. It doesn't really phase me, you know? No, it's, it's not uncommon, is it? It's quite, you yeah. know, a few people and different diseases who may need it and yeah and it's a hurdle it, it took a lot of it took years of getting used to it hmm. you know it's, it's just something that you know you don't want no you don't want it all and it took years to get used to it but as you spoke about the uh, different chemos and the neuropathy my pre-surgery chemotherapy for the rectal cancer was 5-FU and then yeah. my post-surgery chemotherapy was full fox Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, okay. And then when the neuropathy started, uh, my doc immediately put me on full furry. And that stuff okay. made me sick as can be. 
That stuff was brutal. The second time around, when I was uh, going to Memorial Sloan Kettering, I saw Dr. Nancy Kemeny, my oncologist. And after the yeah. surgery, she put me on full Fox, I believe. But what is important, the reason I'm talking about it, is once I had some neuropathy, she didn't immediately pull me off it. Changed the cocktail and reduced certain things. And she was okay with me having a little bit of neuropathy. You know, my feet, they feel like I'm standing on cotton balls that are on top of, you know, small round rocks, like rock, mm. like little golf balls. Golf balls with cotton on top of it is what I feel like sometimes if I really pay attention to my feet. And my hands, they feel slightly, the slightest bit of numbness in them, in the fingertips. Uh, so to me, that's acceptable. I met a guy... And he had, I'm not sure if it's colon or rectal cancer, but his neuropathy is so bad. It's just burning in his, mm. at least his feet, possibly his hands. And he has to take a medication to reduce the pain. And that medication causes tinnitus. Mm. Those ears are always ringing. So I had no idea when my docs were reducing the chemo, the favor they were doing me, you know, in reducing the chances that I could have some kind of neuropathy like that. I don't know this guy's uh, experience. You know, I don't know, you know how much they reduced it. Perhaps it was just the way his body responded. You know, I'll ask him next time yeah. I see him because I am curious. But yeah, there's a lot of uh, dangers and risks to, uh, to going with the treatment. Yeah, and that's why, you know, when you weigh things up, I, I just didn't want that to happen to me. And I guess that's why I chose to cut my conventional treatment a bit short and when you look at some people and they're just like how did you do that were you not scared I was like well I was but well not scared but it was the choice I I didn't want to live the rest of my life with like really bad hands or whatever or if I you know I I wanted to have you know decent feeling in my hands and and today my hands are fine but that was you know, my choice. Yeah. When people hear about you making that choice, that's a, that's a natural response. Really? Did, are you sure that you're okay with doing that? And from an outsider looking in, it makes sense that the question would arise. I and mean, I would imagine mm. the question would arise for a lot of patients. And as you speak more with your doctor, you realize, mm. oh, okay. So things can get really bad mm. with neuropathy and it's not uncommon for a chemotherapy treatment to be altered, for the cocktail to be changed hmm. so that the amount of damage to the body is limited. Yeah. And it is yeah. a bit of a balancing act. And yeah. we don't know how it's going to turn out. Nope, no, and uh, it's probably just as well. Yeah. Uh, to me, honestly, that was one of the most liberating uh, bits of awareness hmm. for me was when I realized, oh, I have no idea how this is going to go. In the beginning, that was what made it terrifying. Mm. But later on down the road, that's what became so freeing. I have no say in this. I can let go of any concerns about control and making sure I do it right because I have none. I just don't like <laughs> it. It's one, of the, it's one of my pet hates. It's like when people come and are really upset and all oh, the doctors told me I got five weeks or something it's like nobody knows how long you have not even your doctor and they shouldn't say that and also why would they say that because then you know you see some case and then like 40 years later they're still there like 
you you can't say when someone's time is up. I mean, you can only go on statistics, which compares, you know, the youngest patient with the oldest patient. And, you know, it, it could have happened 20 years ago and now in the study. It's like, it doesn't, you can't. It's a very... Right. You know, vague summary. Right. A friend of mine was given three months. Well, I met her in the chemo uh, suite uh, when I was going through chemo for my second treatment, my second diagnosis. Mm. And she was diagnosed around the same time I was. And she was told she had three months to live. And she was mortified. And she lived about 10 years. Mm. And mm. she's passed away now. But mm. when. She and I would go for walks at times, you know, she would say to me, well, there's no more treatment for me. So now it's just a matter of time. And I said to her, I said, there's no more treatment for you right now. Mm -hmm. Right now, science and technology has no treatment that will cure you. Mm -hmm. And that is so, but that's right now. And and you don't know. No. And because, you know, in my mind, it's important for me to notice where I think in really black and white terms and to, you know, you know, kind of untangle the thinking and to see what's really there and be like, okay, there is no, there's never, there's rarely ever just one way or the other. And, yeah. you know, and, and bless her heart. I mean, she had a really difficult diagnosis and she had years of treatment and I don't, I'm not trying to diminish that, but what I'm pointing to is there's no treatment right now. There's no cure for yeah. that today, but you're in the midst of treatment and things do change and they do have breakthroughs. And they told her she had three months and she lived 10 years. But then don't you feel I mean, with that as well, though? It's literally when, when someone, a medical professional or whatever, when someone does that, quite often the patient naturally will then give up. Like you say, if you're not that kind mm. of person who will stand up for your rights, will ask or question it, you'd literally just go home to die oh. because you give up. But people do it all the time, though. They just, you know, and that's the sad part. And a lot of it comes from because they've been told that that's what's going to happen. So that's what happens because they go home and just stop doing anything, stop believing, stop, you know, they literally just stop living. And that's... I believe that has a, a big part to play with it as well. I would imagine it does as well because mm-hmm. there are folks who are given only a few months. And what's really so is that they really do only have a few months. Mm. And so imagine a doctor tells you you only have a few months and then you find out that that's not the case. Yeah. Like some folks, like I had a friend who was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He only made it a few more months because the doctors didn't have treatments for him. They said it's it's gone far too far. Hmm. And those diagnoses are real. Oh, yeah, and definitely. so when you get told you have three months and you could very easily just give up. Hmm. And it's hard enough when you're told you have a 25% chance of living or a 75% chance of living. That's a heck of a thing to be told. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, that's it. And I think the oncologist that I had, he was not keen on saying things. It was, but I said that we said that we were like, we wanted to know just what the stats mm. said. But obviously yeah. that was our choice. But I just, so that I then could make an informed choice or as best as I could carry on with my research. But I just think that just having that kind of thing, you've got three months 
or you have three days or whatever, like, because nobody knows. I, I just think that it could just really break somebody completely. And I mean, lucky if you have that kind of positive thing in you and you're able to make the most of those three months if it turned out to be true. But if you just went home and sat and looked into the wall because they upset you so much and that's just, I don't know, to me it just doesn't seem fair because, like I said, it's just no way of knowing, is there? Yeah, there isn't. And it's been proven that attitude can make a difference the other side of that is you know i've had people tell me you know why you had such a positive attitude i'm sure that's why you're still alive and i say i'm not oh thank you okay but i have Mm. no idea i i feel i feel just lucky for me my positive attitude was about if i'm gonna die i'm gonna live fully yeah like you said you had a lot of other things you know you tried detoxing you tried treatment you had lots of conventional treatment you had surgery I mean who knows it's probably a combination of all those things and the attitude as well who knows but it's no way again there's no way of truly knowing that there's only certain things that we do really know and one of those things that I keep on coming back to in these conversations is you know the fact that they call, you know, colon cancer is like an old man's disease, yeah. meat eaters and the obese or whatever. And then since I was diagnosed, so many young people younger than me have died. I know three mm. of them or two or three of them this year, not that long ago. And, you know, they're, they're younger than me, you know, in their 20s and 30s and like my husband said the other day, why aren't people looking into these things? I mean, it's obviously coming somewhere from, you know, is it environment? Is it hormones? Is it what, what is causing it? And, you know, they have to start, you know, they have to start seeing you, even if you are that young, healthy and fit person, because the truth is you could still have cancer. You know, you could look and feel the best you mm. ever felt, but doesn't mean anything like if you feel that something is wrong and you might be a vegetarian for whatever you are I mean they they just have to listen to you and I think in the long run surely that would save money as well yeah I agree with you I did say a moment ago you know that you know you know was it my positive attitude that helped me but I do want to you know I, I do agree with what you're saying that you know if a positive attitude makes a difference, then by all means, you know, be a positive and be hopeful, right? <laughs> but yeah. I was, I, I was, as you described, when I was going through chemo, when I was going through treatment, you know, there were, in the beginning parts of it, I looked healthy. When I was diagnosed, I looked completely healthy. Like people would say to me, I heard that you're sick. And my initial response in my mind would be, well, I'm not sick. I have a tumor in my body which could kill me, but I'm not sick. Now I get what they were saying, but in my mind, it just like, I was, I wasn't sick. I was healthy. I was in great shape. <laughs> it was just a tumor that needed to go. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Or, or the other, or the other thing that always comes up as well is kind of that, you know, a lot of people that kind of shame kind of thing that is shining on, having cancer or why do some people get cancer and some people don't and you know 
some people look at it as if it's some something taboo, isn't it? A lot of people yeah. still don't like talking about it. It's like we don't want to talk about cancer. It's like dirty, you know, I'm never going to get cancer. And, and why do people, oh, you're so brave talking about cancer. It's like, yeah, but one out of two women in their lifetime, one out of three men will get cancer. Mm. I mean, that's a lot of people, you know, uh, and it has to be talked about. And it's not, you know, just if you've done something bad, you get cancer or you bring it. it yeah, it's probably likely to be related to something that's happened in your life will it be stress or eating or you know mental it could be so many things and I know for me it definitely wasn't my diet I think it was probably more like uh, things from the past or stress or stress of becoming pregnant or stress with my mum drinking when I was younger and not you know being able to let go of them probably holding on and mm -hmm. taking care of her as if she was my child or you know we're fine today and it, it's all fine but you know you're thinking you know does that make me a bad person or you know we all got mental health issues or I, I didn't eat the dirty burger that's not why I got sick <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like oh I don't know why does it have to be yeah it's so taboo as well. It's a shame, isn't it? It is. There's there's taboo around cancer. And when when I was diagnosed, I had shame around it. Thought to myself, what mm. did I do wrong? Where did I fail? You know, I have a family. I had a stepson and a five month old baby when I was diagnosed, and there was so much shame. And mm. at, at one point, I thought to myself, how in heavens am I ashamed? Like, what is going on? And that's something that I hear, I don't hear brought up. And so I love that you brought it up because people do feel shame around it. There's mm. the whole, you know, so many emotions that can show up and so many odd thoughts we can have in response to being diagnosed. And now that people are being diagnosed younger and younger, mm. it points to, well, in my mind that, you know, what am I trying to say? If a person smokes cigarettes and then they're, they get older and they get, they get lung cancer, I think we can all know where that comes from. And I don't judge. Yes. I don't judge them because mm -hmm. life is hard. Life is mm -hmm. hard. And we all do what we do to pacify life and, and to ease the pain. And some of us drink and some of us smoke. And we, you know, some of us eat sweets and greasy food and whatever it is that we do to numb the pain because life is hard. But in that example, my point is to say, you know, there are other kinds of cancer. We have no idea where they came from. But what we can see is that it's showing up with younger and younger people. Mm -hmm. And I'm with you. I'm like, what is the source? I mean, I'm glad you're working on treatments and I was developing the treatments, but who's looking at the source? Where is mm -hmm. this coming from? Why? Yeah. Is it our environment? Is it what we're putting in our bodies? Is, there, is it the food reading? So many questions and it's, it's, it's cancer is becoming more and more common. And like even they're talking about like in uh, some of the stuff I've been studying recently, the whole thing about a simple thing like if you live, say, under a pylon or something like that and you've got a lot of electricity fields around your house, how come someone can live there for years and don't get ill whereas the other person gets cancer? And again, it, it comes down to, you know, other things. It goes further than that. How stressed was that person? You know, how was their 
microbiome, how is their gut health, how is their, you know, lifestyle. It comes down to so many other things as well that some people, obviously it's not good for you, but some people can live under a pile until they're 100 and they're still fine. I have a buddy whose grandfather smoked into his 90s and he started when he was like nine years old or something and the the doc said... (laughs) How, how long have you been smoking? And the guy was in his 90s. He's like, oh, since I was nine years old. And the doc looks at him and goes, well, maybe cut back a little. Like, you know, <laughs> like, why do some people live into their 90s and have smoked for 80 years? For other people, they smoke for who knows how long and they get cancer. Or they don't smoke and they get cancer, you know? It, it, I think, like, no, I was thinking, but you, what you're saying about that as well, because my theory with that in recent years has always been, if I see someone that all like look like they're eating McDonald's day in and day out, like you say, they're smoking, they're like don't look after themselves at all, but still, like you say, go on then to live till they're like ninety five or something. I think that the only thing I can see is they probably don't get stressed. Mm-hmm. They take the stress off and they don't care that they're eating badly and they don't care. They're quite relaxed. I think that must be it. They don't have that kind of stress and that's what keeps them not from getting ill. I can't see what else it could be. They're, you know, they're chilled out, sitting there, you know, no care in the world, you know, 10 burgers, fags. So fine, you know, smoke here, smoke there. It just, I don't get it. I can't mm. work out, but they don't seem very stressed <laughs> about it either. <laughs> Maybe that's no it. stress. Maybe that's it. No oh. stress mentality. Perhaps I do not know, but it's uh, where I focus my attention, as you know, is with this podcast, and just you know, I really want to transform the cultural conversation about cancer, the conversation regarding how we navigate it and how we go through it, because it's so difficult, and I don't want people to be alone when they go through this. I want other experiences to be heard and to be shared and all the points of view and everything we talked about and everything I will talk about with so many people. It's just when you go into cancer, you don't have, you know, the first time you get diagnosed for most folks, they don't have any experience with it and they don't know which direction to go and they don't know how to navigate it. And my hope is that as they hear our stories, you know, they can take something away from that. And, uh, you know, if they're newly, if, if you're listening to this and you're newly diagnosed, you know, my hope is that you're going to hear what we're speaking about and hopefully in some way it will be a contribution to your approach and there may be something you may add or something you'll let go of something you'll take on because we don't know there's so much unknown and it's such a scary disease i'm just glad to have had you know two three clear scans but like you say every year is a victory every month every blood test i got my bloods due next month. Do you do bloods at all? I guess not anymore. Well, or do with, you still do it? Every year with the CT scan, mm. I get blood work as well. Mm. So here they do it like every six months uh, when you've had cancer. Like obviously, depending on what kind of cancer you had, you have a different blood test, but they're kind of looking for the for tumor markers or cancer markers and stuff. So yeah, we got, we got that every six months. Well, I got it every six months. Yeah, if my cancer had not gotten so close to my lymph nodes, hmm. my doctor would have just done blood test follow-ups. Hmm. But because it got so close to the lymph nodes, yeah. it went to PET scans. And I had to push hmm. for that because he was just going to do blood work until I said, well, what about the fact that I had no markers when I was diagnosed? Hmm. 
And he said, oh, well, if you had no markers, maybe we should do CT scans. And I said, well, also, there's the fact that it got really close to the lymph nodes. It was stage 2T4. And then he goes, oh, yeah, that's true too. Well, then we should do PET scans. Mm -hmm. So I went from blood work to PET scans, which is another reason why it's so important to advocate for yourself. But my point is, if my cancer wasn't as uh, far along as it was, it would have just been blood work. And now that, you know... I had a stage four diagnosis in mm. 2011. You know, it's yeah. it's scans, and I don't know how long they go for. You know, some folks have told me that scans never stop. Other folks have told me that after a certain number of years. I remember an oncologist telling me, you know, they only give you scans for so many years. After a while, you know, it's amazing what they'll find in the body <laughs> if you just mm. keep looking. But yeah, well, that's it. And the scans themselves as well—they're full of radiation mm-hmm. as well, aren't they? I mean, yes, they are. And so it's like, do I want to scan? Do I not want to scan? It's so hard. And obviously they're necessary and they're, you know, they have their place. But like you say, do you want them for your lifetime? Or when do you stop having them? Or I know of someone who had stage four, I think it's the same as, as you actually, same kind of cancer. But um, yeah, he was told he had months, but he's still here bouncing off the wall, no cancer. Um, and yeah, he doesn't have scans anymore now. He did have one at one point. He had some tummy ache or something, but it turned out to be like gallstones or something. But mm. no, not having any more. He said, I'm just going to carry on living as long as I feel well. And, you know, that's what I'm going for. So Beautiful. Yes, yeah, it's all clear. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, Maria, it's been a real treat having this conversation with you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. You're so welcome. You have a great day. Okay, I will. Bye-bye. Make sure you follow Maria on Instagram. During the episode, you heard us discuss Step Inside My Healing Pantry. The new name for her Instagram feed is Holistic Living with Maria. Thank you so much for tuning in. I truly hope this podcast was of value to you. Please subscribe and let your friends and family know they can find But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast, anywhere podcasts are made available. To learn more about my cancer survivorship coaching, go to bertscholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. The intro and outro music you hear is the creation of Saint Kid. You can find him on social media as The Saint Kid. See you all in the next podcast, and thank you so much for listening. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a platform for individuals to discuss personal experiences with a medical diagnosis. The host and guests are not medical professionals, and the podcast is not intended to provide medical advice or psychological therapy. Whenever there is a concern about mental or physical health, please consult a qualified medical professional.